Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Luke, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, didn't Seth do an awesome job preaching last week, if you were here? Yeah. As he, uh, as he said, we're in this marriage series. He kicked it off last week kind of talking about the story of marriage. Um, and we're going to continue uh, looking at some of that stuff today. Uh, but before we do, uh, I have some fun stuff to talk about related to our Home Away From Home initiative. So Seth had just mentioned that uh, we've been in this initiative to be able to build on the property that we own next door. And so we spent the last four weeks prior to this series talking about uh, the kind of church God wants us to be. That we're building a house and we've talked about what would it look like to be a family that really makes that a home that uh, Jesus has and is preparing for people who will trust in him a home, an eternal home, and the church gets to be a taste of that home. So two weeks ago, we invited those of you who are members and regular tenders to give and to commit. Uh, we asked you to give a one-time gift, as well as to let us know what you would give over and above, over and above your regular giving over the next three years. And so uh, that's happened on that day, as well as some of you mailed some things in. And now is the day when we get to celebrate and announce uh, to you what, what, uh, where we are. Okay? So... Um, so let me give you uh, some context. Uh, our goal, again, in terms of what we wanted to have in one-time gifts as well as commitments, our goal was $1.8 million, which would allow us to move forward on that project. Um, let me show you first, this is an incredible number, let me show you first what was actually given. So this isn't commitments, this is what has actually been given. Uh, here you go. So yeah, almost... Uh, Almost $360,000, which is incredible. If you're not a math person, here's what that is. That is about, that's really exactly 20%. So 20% of the goal has already been given. So wow, that's so cool. So thank you for that. Um, but then when we add to it what the, the pledges are and the commitments are, where does that get us? And so in order to share that with you, I want to invite up uh, some, some folks from our church who have been part of this initiative. So will you guys uh, welcome up all these people? So each of these folks has a number. It's like the price is right. <laughs> I mean, we're not going to make you guess what order they go in, um, but this is pretty fun. So uh, this is just so cool. I love this. So we're going to start at the end, and we're going to work our way and see where we ended up. So go ahead, Cheryl. Yeah, way to go, you. That's awesome. I'll let these guys stay here for a second. So if you're looking at this, like they're different heights, you're like, what is it? Okay, so it's 1.799 million and, and some change. So here's what that means. That means uh, that this, is no, this number here is 99.95% of the goal. And um, yeah, that's really cool. But, but here's what I'll tell you. This number's actually wrong. Because at the last service I said, this means we're only $752 short. And I had two people come up after the service and say, I like hitting goals. Here's a check for $752. So we are now, yeah. So we are now at $1.8 million and 752 and six cents. So, 
So that is just really cool. And um, he, here's what's been so special for me. There's a few people that have been involved, a real small group of people that have been involved in counting and collecting and entering stuff into our database and all that sort of stuff. And as I've talked to each of those, because I don't know what everybody gives and has committed to this, as I talk to them, they all have had a sparkle in their eye because they are looking at these commitments and they know that our church isn't filled up. I don't think anybody made a six-figure commitment or gift. This is a lot of people um, doing what they can do and you all doing what you can do and that team being able to kind of see that and celebrate that has just been awesome. And, um, and I love it because God, God doesn't need our money, but he uses money to shape us and to form us, and that so many of you are part of this process with us is so cool. And uh, if you haven't been, if you've been like, ah, I'm on the fence, you might go, ah, they don't need the money. We never needed the money. God has all the money. But you might need the growth. And so if you want to join in with us, it's, uh, you can grab a, a commitment card at the info desk and still be part of it. It's not too late, but there's a lot just to celebrate. So let's praise God, and uh, yeah, let's... Let's, uh, let's, let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you. God, what an amazing uh, gift of generosity from you through your people. God, for the sake of your mission, it's incredible, uh, Lord, to me how you provide for our church and how you have over and over and over, um, even in the last service, uh, moving people to say, let's, let's hit the goal. And Lord, we thank you for that. Thank you for all of the money that's been given and committed. Thank you for all of the families that are going to sacrifice and, and give generously. Lord, that, that is so sweet. And we pray that you use it, God, to shape us and to form us, to help us to be more committed to the glory of God in our city. So Lord, we thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Will you thank these guys one more time? Thank you, guys. You got the shiny number. I love it. That's great. Very cool. Here's what is uh, especially cool is on November, so commitment day was November 20th. November 21st, we were at 1.6. So it's been really fun to watch it just keep going up and up and up. It's really fun. So, all right. Well, we are going to talk now, second part of this series, All I Want for Christmas is You. And uh, in a couple weeks, Molly and I are going to celebrate our 15th anniversary, which is kind of fun. Yeah. Polite applause, I appreciate that. Ten years from now, that'll be something really, really cool. But um, it's amazing because as I've been thinking about those 15 years, I, I realized there's so much that we didn't know 15 years ago. We got married. I was still a student at the University of Illinois. We got married and lived in married student housing, uh, which we called the bomb shelter because it was like the apartment was half underground. And uh, we were just happy to be able to live in the same place and be married, and it was incredible. Um, and there's just so much we didn't know. We didn't know what kind of career path we were on. We didn't know where we'd live. Uh, we didn't really even know ourselves. You know, we, I feel like I'm just now as a 37-year-old getting to kind of figure out who am I. And at 22, I didn't have no idea, let alone know who she was. And so we didn't, we didn't know a lot. And the, the thing that we for sure didn't know or at least didn't take seriously, was what is the number one threat to our marriage and to every marriage? And it's self-centeredness. Here's what Tim Keller says in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. He says, self-centeredness is a havoc-wreaking problem in many marriages, and it is the ever-present enemy of every marriage. It is the cancer in the center of a marriage when it begins, and it has to be dealt with. 
one of the things that I think Keller would say, I know is true of my experience, is that, that marriage doesn't cause self-centeredness, it reveals it. And you put two sinners together, two self-centered people together, and if they don't deal with that self-centeredness, it is a cancerous thing. It's going to destroy the marriage. And Molly and I didn't know that. We didn't, we didn't at least experientially for sure, know how dangerous self-centeredness could be. It's why the, 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 re, the reason that the Bible gives us so much kind of straightforward uh, marriage teaching that is demolishing this is because the Bible knows what a threat it is. So th- this is why I would say this is an important series for those of you who are single. I know that there's a lot of married people in our church, but there's also quite a few single people. And for those of you who are single, um, you may have heard about this series and gone, oh, great, marriage series. I, maybe, maybe I'll go to another redemption. They're probably doing something different for Advent. And they are. Uh, so you could do that. But I hope you'll stay. I hope you'll be here for this series. And, and there's a couple of reasons. One is for those of you who hope to at some point be married, I hope you'll use this as an opportunity to prepare. I hope you'll use this to, to reflect on what Christ has done for you and in this particular message to, to try to grow out of some of your self-centeredness, to grow in humility, to grow in your love for others. Because here's the thing, some of you who have been single a while, you know this, is that singleness can make you an expert in self-centeredness. Some of you got married at a later age and first marriage for both of you or first marriage for one of you and you know singleness can make you really, really self-centered. And so use this as a chance to fight that and to prepare for what God might have for you in the future. Maybe you go, I don't want to be married. I've been down that road or I don't want to go down that road. Um, Here's what I'd say to you as well is use this kind of a series to encourage your friends who are married. We need your encouragement. We need your help. We are a a community of people. This church is not only married people. And the insights and the, the, the wisdom and the observations from single people into relationships with people that are married are really, really valuable. We need that. So let me just remind you kind of what we started with last week. Seth told us the story of marriage, and really the whole Bible is a kind of story of marriage. In the beginning, God creates Adam and Eve, and he creates them to be married. It says in Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This verse really tells us the purpose of marriage is oneness. The purpose of marriage is intimacy, oneness between a man and a woman. That's what the purpose of it is. And this is actually the verse that the Apostle Paul and Jesus both quote whenever they talk about marriage. They talk about this. And so Seth showed us how God had created us uh, in his image, these two people to become one flesh, but they sin, they rebel against God, what could be called the first act of spiritual adultery. And as a result of that, this oneness breaks down. Adam begins to blame his wife Eve for the sin rather than own up to his part of it. And that spiritual adultery becomes a kind of analogy that Seth showed us throughout the rest of Scripture, that God chooses a people and that those people continue to rebel against God, continue to commit spiritual adultery, and in the midst of that, God is still faithful. I love the part last week where he said that those of you who've experienced an unfaithful spouse you have experienced something of the heart of God in a way that other people haven't. Because God has had people constantly love other things than him 
and he keeps coming after us. He came after us with Jesus and he promises, as we just celebrated a moment ago, to return. And so there's a sense in which the whole Bible is the story of a marriage. And it's in that story, through that story that we now want to begin to look at what Paul says here about the roles of a husband and wife. How do we, what, what roles do we play? How do we do this to, to be able to live in a one kind of marriage? And so here's the big idea for today. We're going to, uh, the outline of the sermon is really this sentence. We're just going to kind of work uh, through each piece of it. So here's the big idea. Husbands and wives are equal before God with different roles, both of which are fulfilled through humility and sacrifice. Husbands and wives are equal before God with different roles, both of which are fulfilled through humility and sacrifice. So first part of that sentence, husbands and wives are equal before God. The scripture says this in Genesis 1.27. Here's what it says there. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So Adam and Eve are both created in the image of God. They are equal before God. Now, it's interesting, actually, when you think about how God created Adam out of the dirt and then Eve out of the side of Adam. Isn't it fascinating? A number of scholars have pointed out God didn't use Adam's foot to create Eve as though she were below him. He didn't use Adam's skull to create Eve as though she were above him. She, he, God created Eve out of Adam's side to say you're to walk side by side, you're to be partners, you're to be shoulder to shoulder in the mission and calling that I have given you. You are equal before God. And if God says we're equal, that settles it. Amen? Amen. Now, here's the thing. Equal does not mean same. Equal does not mean interchangeable. Now, this is something that's interesting because in some areas of our culture, the culture understands this. The culture is actually kind of in line with what the Bible says. And, and yet in other ways, it's so out of whack, right? So, so the culture understands that equal doesn't mean same when it comes to, say, race, right? Red, yellow, black, white, all are precious in his sight. And yet just because we're equal doesn't mean we're the same. I, this is something I, I really want to share, uh, particularly for those of you who are white. You will sometimes say, and I know you say that you mean this from a really good place, but you'll say, I don't see color. And what you need to know is that your brothers and sisters, who are people of color, are hurt by that. Because what it feels like you're saying is, you don't see me. Right, imagine if, if I said, uh, well, I don't, I don't see gender. Well, ladies, has gender been part of your life? Men, has, has, has being male been part of your life? Yeah. So if I said, well, I don't see gender, you go, well, you don't see me. Because that, that's part of who I am. It's not the whole thing I am. Right? And so when we say, well, I don't see color, we're saying, well, we're all just the same. No, no, no. We're equal. Equal in value, but we have different experiences. We have different backgrounds. We have different cultures. All of those things come and they form and they shape us. And so, so equal doesn't mean same. So we get that as a culture when it comes to race, but we're totally confused about it when it comes to gender. When it comes to gender, we just go, well, you know, it's all interchangeable and let's all just use the same bathroom and whatever else. It just doesn't matter. There's no difference. 
And the scripture says, yes, there is a difference. We are equal before God, but different in role. Husbands and wives are equal before God with different roles, both of which are fulfilled through humility and sacrifice. So what does it mean that we have different roles? Well, that's what Paul talks about here in Ephesians 5. He talks about these different roles. Uh, He talks about how wives are to submit to their own husbands, how husbands are to love their wives, how husbands are to love their wives, how wives are to respect their husbands. Notice he doesn't just say the same blanket thing like, hey, there's no difference between men and women, Uh, just all treat each other the exact same. No, he doesn't say that. He says there are different roles. You're equal but with different roles. Now, one thing that he uses to describe these different roles you see in verse 23. He describes this analogy of a head and a body. Look at verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So here, Paul uses an analogy. He says, listen, uh, the the husband-wife relationship is like the Jesus-church relationship. And in the Jesus church relationship, Jesus is the head and the church is the body, right? So if you're new to Christianity, sometimes you'll hear people talk about the body of Christ, the body of Christ. You go like, what are you talking about? They're talking about the church. The church is the body of Christ. Paul is saying the husband is the head of the family. The wife is the body of the family. These are describing different roles. You go, gosh, well, I don't know if I like how that sounds. So let's finish the sentence. Husbands and wives are equal before God with different roles, both of which are fulfilled through humility and sacrifice. So equal before God, different roles, but we fulfill these roles, each of us differently, but also both through humility and sacrifice. Now, in order to really get the sense of this, we have to back up to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. So if you have your Bible, flip back to verse 18. And here's what the the apostle writes there. He says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And uh, go back a couple weeks ago, the the third message in our Home Away From Home series, I talked about being a, a, a home, being a people empowered by the Spirit. We talked about this verse. But here's what Paul says happens if you're filled with the Spirit. If God's Spirit is permeating your life, notice the joy and the humility that results. Look at what happens. Be filled with the Spirit. Here's what will happen. Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. I read that and thought of Christmas Carol. Molly and I just went and saw Christmas Carol the other day over at the Hale Theater, right? Kick off our Christmas season. If you've ever seen Christmas Carol, at the beginning of it, everybody's singing. Everyone's got melody in their heart except for Scrooge. And he just walks around, bah, humbug. Right, but by the end of the, by the, end of the show, he's skipping and he's singing. There's a melody in his heart. Right, Paul's saying that's what happens when you're filled with the Spirit. You, you, your bah, humbug goes away and all of a sudden you have joy in your heart. Here's what else happens, verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus. So if you're filled with the Spirit, there's a melody, there's a joy in your heart, there's gratitude in your heart. And then notice the last thing. Verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So get this. Paul says when you're filled with God's Spirit, when God's Spirit is at work in you, there's joy in your heart that you didn't have before. There's gratitude in your heart that you didn't have before. And now you're humble. 
You're submitting to other people out of reverence for Christ. You're going, I don't have to have my way. I don't have to win. I don't have to be right. Let's do what you want. That's just what happens when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. But then he says, okay, now what does that look like in a marriage relationship? And so he continues, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So wives, you want to be filled with the Spirit, right? Here's what being filled with the Spirit looks like. It means you submit to your own husband as to the Lord. Now, a couple things to notice there. Notice it doesn't say wives submit to husbands. It says wives submit to your own husbands. Nor does it say women submit to men. It says wives submit to your own husband. Right, ladies, you're going like, I I definitely couldn't submit to all men because it's hard enough with one. (laughs) And there's a lot of confusion about this idea, but but I wanted to to back up and show you like all Christians submit. All Christians follow because all Christians have been purchased by the blood of Jesus and have had hearts transformed toward humility. Now, the wife does this toward her own husband, and and here's some things that this doesn't mean. Submission does not mean that a husband is the ultimate authority. A husband isn't the ultimate authority. Jesus is, right? Paul even says that in verse 23. The husband's the head of the wife, but Christ is the head of the church, and the the, the guy's the part of the church, right? So so he's got to look to Jesus. Submission does not mean that a wife is less intelligent or competent than her husband. Men, do I hear an amen? Amen. Right, some of you, like me, are married to someone way smarter than you. Like, I'm not a total idiot, but but my wife is like really, really smart. She has a degree in math. She's forgotten more math than I've ever learned. Right? And she's wise. She went to a Christian high school and, and the award she got her senior year was the Solomon Award for Wisdom. I mean, I am so out over my skis, it's not even funny. It doesn't mean doesn't mean that I'm smarter at all that I'm the leader or the head of the home. So submission doesn't mean that she's less intelligent. Submission doesn't mean that a wife doesn't have independent thoughts or views. You're made in the image of God, ladies. You should have those thoughts and views. Submission does not mean that a wife doesn't seek to influence her husband. Because of the intelligence and the wisdom of wives, good wives often will say, "Uh, honey, can we talk about that? Can we think about that? Can I give you some insight into that? Would you please, uh, I don't feel like you're really listening to me right now. Could you listen to me? Right? That's, that's part of submission. That's part of a, a godly marriage. And submission does not mean that a wife must obey her husband's command to sin. If your husband commands you to sin, tells you to sin, wants you to sin, you say no because your ultimate authority is to Jesus. Amen? Amen. So, so wives submit to your husband. That's what happens when you are filled with the Spirit. And, and what's interesting is none of this at this point would have surprised any of Paul's readers. But what comes next would have been shocking. What comes next is so not how the first century worked that it's amazing. Right? A lot of times people want to go, oh, the Bible, it's so regressive and it's so old-fashioned, it's so patriarchal. <laughs> Wait till you hear what Paul's doing in this next part. Because up to this point, he's going, all right, here's how it works. The husband's the head, the wife's the body, body submit to the head. And everyone's like, got it. 
Why? Why do do they go, oh yeah, I get that. Because the head-body analogy was used a lot in this Roman culture. Seneca talks about this. He was in the first century. Plutarch talks about this. And and the way it was often used was, was of military or government. So the emperor was the head and the people were the body. Or the general was the head and the soldiers were the body. And the way it was commonly understood in the first century was that the head was superior. The head was most important. The head had to be protected at all costs. So the the body had to do whatever it took to protect and, and keep alive the head. And the head had to do whatever it took to keep alive the head. The number one priority for both head and body was the head. It, it was not considered valiant for the, the leader to sacrifice himself. That was considered stupid because the head is so important. The other thing is that it was not at all thought that the head should love the body. Right? The emperor didn't have an obligation to love the people. He might show them mercy. The general didn't have an obligation to love his soldiers. He might be kind to them, but he didn't have to be. Here's how we see that. We see this in a quote by Aristotle. This is, you know, 300s BC. He says this. He has this, this same idea in his mind. He says, for it would be ludicrous if one were to accuse God because he does not return love in the same way as he is loved. Or for a subject to make this accusation against a ruler. For it is the part of a ruler to be loved, not to love. Now get this. We, we've heard that God loves us so much that we imagine God owes it to us. Aristotle, Seneca, Plutarch, all these first century thinkers, they didn't think that. Yeah, God owes you diddly squat. You owe God love. He doesn't owe you love back. You should sacrifice for him. He doesn't sacrifice for you. Right? That, that, that's, that's ridiculous. Like You can love the ruler, but he doesn't have to love you back. That's what Aristotle's saying. So up to this point, Paul's saying, hey, Christ is the head of the church, we got the body. The husband's the head of the wife, the wife's the body. And we're going, yeah, 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 I got it. And then Paul turns that whole thing upside down on the basis of the gospel and the kingdom of God. Look at what he says in verse 25. He says, husbands, love your wives. What? Head doesn't have to love the body. The body's there to love the head. Not, not in the gospel. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What? Do you see this? Do you see how transformative the gospel and the kingdom of God is? Paul's saying, listen, in the gospel, the head of the universe rather than being sacrificed for, sacrifices. Rather than being someone who can't can't give love and just receives it, the, the head of the universe, Jesus Christ, loves. And so Paul takes this head body thing and he just says, let me infuse it with the gospel. Yes, husbands, you're the leader. Yes, husbands, you will give an account for the state of your family. Yes, husbands, like uh, God came to Adam and said, Adam, uh, what happened here? God will have you give an account. You are the leader of your home, but you are to do it 
as Jesus did it, which is to say, rather than saying, hey, sacrifice for me, love me, you lead the way in sacrificing. You lead the way in loving. You lead the way in serving. We talk a lot about servant leadership, servant leadership, servant leadership. Here's what this is saying. This is saying you're not called to be a servant leader. You're called to be the lead servant. Seth asked last week at this service, in your marriage, who's the, who's the suffering servant? What this is saying is that the husband should be. Yes, the wife has to support. Yes, the wife has to submit. Yes, there are these moments where, you know, push comes to shove and, and the wife follows the leadership of her husband. But the, the leadership of her husband is turned totally upside down from how the world thinks, right? The world thinks, and all of these first century people would have thought, you know, the way you have honor in a culture like this is you exploit weakness. You, you, you take advantage of weakness. You do whatever you can to be strong and to be big and to be important. And Paul says, if you do that, you're not like Jesus, and you're going to ruin your marriage. Paul says, no, love. Love the way Christ loved. This is why we just keep hitting. I mean, I just, every, every week, I just keep up. Okay, we're talking about love again. Why? Because that's what this is all about. Right? So, so it's saying, yes, husbands, you're the head. Yes, lead through love. And what is love? We talk about this a lot. Love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand payback or that the person is deserving. Why is that a good definition of love? Because that's how Jesus loved us. So that's how we love. Here's what Michelle Lee Barnwall says. She's a, a scholar at Biola. She says, in Ephesians, the husband Christ creates intimacy by caring for the wife church as much as he does for himself and so provides the nurture and care that is necessary for an intimate union. Whereas as a result of his sin, Adam identified Eve impersonally as the woman whom you gave to be with me. Now the husband who is in Christ considers the woman as his very body and is willing to give himself up for her rather than trying to save himself by blaming her. Do you get this? Adam said, I'll be the head, and when things go wrong, I'm blaming her. That's the first Adam approach to marriage. I'm in charge. This is about me. When it goes wrong, it's her fault. Blame her. Is that the kind of marriage you want? Because what Ephesians describes is a second Adam marriage. In the second Adam marriage, things go wrong, and the innocent one goes, blame me. I'll sacrifice for her. I'll sacrifice to cleanse her. I'll sacrifice to bring us back together. Do you want a first Adam marriage or a second Adam marriage? If you want a, a second Adam marriage, it requires both people having an attitude of sacrifice, having an attitude of humility, having an attitude of serving one another rather than trying to compete against each other. You're on the same team. You're one flesh. Here's how Paul says it in verse 33. He says, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's what a godly marriage looks like. All right, but what does that really look like? If we were to kind of think through some of the implications of this, and I could go for a long time on this, but I'll keep it brief. What does this look like first? Here's what it looks like for husbands and wives together. I think it looks like 
praying for your spouse with gratitude. Do you pray for your spouse? You go before the Lord and say, Lord, bless them, keep them, make your face shine upon them and give them peace so that the world would know that you're God. God, would you work in my wife's life? Would you work in my husband's life? God, would you lead them? Would you guide them? Would you be Lord of their life? Do you pray that way for your spouse? And do you pray with gratitude? I'm not just talking about the Thanksgiving, oh, I'm thankful for my family. Everyone is. Do you pray for her? With thanksgiving? go, well, I don't have much to be thankful for. Then you really need to. Because here's what happens. When you start thanking God for stuff, you start seeing things in a new way. You start realizing how everything you have is a gift of God's grace. We have to pray for our spouses with gratitude. Here's the second thing. Husbands and wives, you want to do this well? Commit to go to church every week. Commit to come to church every week. Week. Now, I know kids get sick, and I know there's vacations. I'm, I'm not here every single week. I get it. But I'm here just about every week. Now, you're like, well, you work here. Yeah, you should join me. <laughs> Come to church every week. Actually, let me rephrase this. Come to church at five every week. <laughs> and we'll really build something special together, all right? Why, why, you know, what does this have to do with marriage? Oh, you just wanted me to come to church. No, 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 no. Listen. This whole year of sermons has been leading us to be able to embrace the humility that Ephesians 5 is calling for. I just wrote in two sentences a summary of all the things we've studied this year as we looked at the book of Judges and Titus and Psalms and the Sermon on the Mount. Here's my two-sentence summary of that. Don't live for yourself, Judges, But be zealous to do good works, Titus. Humble yourself honestly before God, that's the Psalms, and embrace the reverse values of Jesus' kingdom. That's the Sermon on the Mount. If you do that, you're ready to submit. You're ready to sacrifice. You're ready to be humble. You're ready to lead in love. So why do I say come to church every week? Because nowhere else is shaping you in these directions. Unless you're a serious like self-feeder, self-seeker, and you podcast, and you listen to stuff, and you do all these things, the rest of the noise in your life is telling you the opposite. It's saying live for yourself. Be zealous to do what makes you happy. Who cares about God? And embrace what the world says is good. Day after day, commercial after commercial, jingle after jingle, over and over and over and over, you better come to church or you're never going to be shaped this way. People go, oh, well, we, you know, we were busy. Yeah, and you're going to be in a world of hurt in your marriage in about eight months. Pray for your spouse. Commit to go to church. And husbands and wives, invite relationships that challenge your self-centeredness. You've got to invite this. You've got to ask people. You got, I mean, I have a number of people I've gone to. I've said, hey, here's the proverbial keys of my life. You have permission at any point to call me on my sin, to call me on my selfishness, to call me on my pride. You've got to do that because most people aren't going to do that. And the people who do, you don't want them as friends. Are the people that are always just pointing out all your problems. You're like, ah, I don't want to be friends. So your normal friends, you have to go to them and say, hey, would you speak into my life? Would you help me? Would you help me grow? Would you help me, you know, when you see self-centeredness, would you point it out? 
And you can't just go once. You've got to go back again and again because people are always going to feel like, oh, I can't say anything. It's not my business. I don't want to meddle. You have to ask for that kind of input. This is why you need a, not just a small group community through the church or somewhere else, but you need some kind of relationships where you are asking people, hey, speak into my life. If you don't have those things, if you don't pray and you don't go to church and you don't have relationships like this, I think it's going to be really, really hard to cultivate the kind of humility that a Christian godly marriage takes. Well, next, what does it look like for husbands? What does it look like for husbands to, to lead their families and love their families in a way that Christ loves the church? Well, I have four, four thoughts there. One is, use the burden of the final say rarely and wisely. I call uh, in marriage that moment when you come to an impasse in your marriage, you've got a decision to make, you've got an approach to take, you've got something that has to be done. Okay, we have to move forward on this. Uh, What are we going to do? We're not sure. There's that moment, and I call it the burden of the final say that the husband has. I don't call it the, the, the privilege, the right, the joy of the final say. Right, Because when you use that, that's the time when God's going to go, hey, how'd that go? (laughs) You asked your wife before you did that, right? So so use that rarely. Right, if you're like, well, I'm the husband. Well, I lead. Well, you got to submit. Well, you got to follow. You've already missed it. You're not leading like Christ. So, So use that burden of the final say rarely and use it wisely. Second, Study your wife to bless her. Here's the thing. You know all the buttons to push, to provoke her. You've studied those. You're like valedictorian in those. I am. But I can often be like dropout on studying to bless. What fills your wife's tank? What drains her? What does she love? What does she hate? Here's a good indication. What does she want for Christmas? You go, I don't know. So what do you do? You give her what you want. That's not love. Here's a bunch of stuff I like. Why don't you have it? That's not love. Here's a question. What season is your wife in? Maybe she's working and trying to take care of kids and trying to juggle this and that. Well, that, that shapes things. You should love her a particular way if that's the case. Maybe she's, she's home and uh, she's with some rugrats all day. Well, that is a season of life. And you've got to go, man, what, what kind of encouragement does she need there? Maybe she's had college, kids headed off to college and she's experiencing an empty nest and she's going, I don't know what to do now with, with this new direction. That's a different season of life. Maybe there's health issues. Maybe there, what season of life is she in? What kind of encouragement do you need? Husbands, study your wives. This is what it says, actually, in 1 Peter 3. In 1 Peter 3, 7, Peter just has one verse for husbands. And it's so hard that he only needed one. Here's what it is. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. That doesn't mean just be patient. That means study her. Live in a way that you understand her. Live with your wives in an understanding way, knowing what makes her tick. And then the rest of the verse is terrifying. The rest of that verse says, live with your wives in an understanding way 
so that your prayers may not be hindered. You know what that's saying? That's saying that if, if you live with your wife in a way that's like, la, 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 that when you pray, God, I really need your help. God goes, okay, la, la, la. I'm going to treat you the way you treat your wife. You ready for that? Study her to bless her. You're on the same team. You're together. Care for her in that way. Here's a third thing. It looks like loving your wife is tell her what you're feeling. Amen. Because the man groans over here. I have in my notes, will feel like death. That's what it sounded like over there. Tell her what you're feeling. Now listen, I know that, that, that some of this is like some guys wear their emotions on their sleeves. Most don't. Right? And, and, and you go, it's going to kill me. What, am I, what are you feeling like? I'm like dinner. I don't know. What do I, I don't know. Like, like some guys, you don't even have that as a category, okay? And, and here's the thing. Dying to yourself says, I'm going to figure out how to have that conversation with her. I know a number of, of people, men and women, that here's what it looks like. It looks like printing out, you can find this all over the place on the internet, print out a list of feelings and look at it and go, I'm feeling that one. I'm feeling that one. You go, gosh, that sounds, that sounds like it's not going to be fun. No, it isn't. It's dying to yourself. It's loving her. It's giving yourself up for her. You go, well, she should just figure it out. He should just figure it out. Okay, Adam. That leads us to this last question. I already mentioned this. Do you want a first Adam marriage or a second Adam marriage? Guys, we've got to ask that question. Are we going to live a marriage that she's just constantly dying for us because we're throwing her under the bus, or are we going to die for her? The resources for that come through Christ. Here's the, uh, what this looks like, I think, for wives. And just to let you know, I emailed a number of women um, who I respect on this and said, hey, what, what do you think this looks like? Because I have some ideas, but I'd rather hear from you. And so everyone on this list came from godly women in our church. First is this, speak well of him to others. That would have been on my list too. Because I overhear a lot of people, right? I'm at coffee shops studying or I have meetings with people or I'm at the gym, whatever, and I hear so many people, and it's both men and women, but it's usually women. And they're talking about what an idiot he is and how stupid he is and all the dumb decisions he made. And I just think, is so disrespectful. And I think it makes the woman complaining look so ugly and small. It's so dishonoring to the Lord. Speak well of him. You go, well, I don't have anything nice to say. Okay, let's go back to pray for your spouse with gratitude. And you do that for a while and you'll have something nice to say. Here's the second thing. Don't compare him to other men. A number of the women I asked all said this. Don't compare him to other men. You compare him to other men, that will make him feel so disrespected. That'll make him feel like, why? You didn't marry other men, you married me. Right, ladies, how do you like it when your husband compares you to someone else? Uh, not at all, right? 
Same thing, same thing the other way. I remember early in our marriage, uh, I told Molly, I said, listen, honey, you did not marry your brother, Jacob. When things break at our house, I'm going to have to call somebody. I know you'd like me to be able to fix it. I can't do it. I can't. I'm not Jacob. I'm me. And so don't compare to other men. Number three, remember you made vows to him, not your children. You made vows to your husband, not your children. Right? We tell our kids this all the time. Hey, you are out of here in a few years, and we are going to be together. And our first loyalty is to one another. We made vows to one another. We didn't make vows to you. And last, choose to trust him or trust God to guide him. I love, I love the insight of this. This woman is saying, hey, choose to trust your husband. There are going to be times when it's difficult. There's going to be times you're like, I don't think this is a very good decision. Choose to trust him. And if you go, I don't know if I can trust him, then choose to trust God to guide him. Let your trust in God Rule over your feelings of fear and your feelings of insecurity and your worry that is going to make you complain and gripe and and second guess. Let him feel your support. Let him feel your trust. Let him feel your love and see what God will do through that. So I look at all this. I think about all this. Here's what's amazing. What God wants, what your children need, what will make you happier And what will display Christ to the world are all the same thing. They are men and women, husbands and wives who are fighting self-centeredness, humbling themselves because they've been loved by Christ and loving one another that way. Let's pray.